Let's begin with a word of prayer. And uh, insofar as we can close doors, that, that, would, that would be great. Thank you. It's good to have a friendly church in the hallway. <laughs> All right. Our Father, we come before you this morning praying that we will miss nothing in your word that you would have for us this morning, but that you would, of your infinite and perfect word, share with us in such a way that our hearts are opened, our minds are illuminated, and our lives are shaped by your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We've discussed over the course of the last several weeks the uh, interesting experience of going through the chapters in the teens of Leviticus. And I have, uh, I, I've joked with preachers before that you find out if you really are committed to word-by-word, word, verse-by-verse exposition about Leviticus 15, 16, 17, and 18. And at that point, as you with a congregation or, 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 or with an assembly of Christians, as you follow through word-by-word, word, the fascinating thing is that you have to wonder what Israel was thinking of all of this. Now, the Deuteronomic key that comes, uh, of course, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the second giving of the law, gives us a clue as to why the law functions as it does within Israel. It is, it is not that every society, community has to have some kind of law. That's true because of the way God made us in Mago Dei. It is because this law is the law that God gave to His covenant people, His chosen people, Israel. So this is His perfect law given to His, his chosen people, and it makes them distinct from all the other peoples of the earth. We often go to a passage like Deuteronomy 4, as any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived. Is, is this law not so perfect that only God could give it to us because He loves us? Look at all the other laws of all the other peoples. None are like this. And then as we think of some of the, of the minute details of the law, we understand that there is no part of Israel's life that is not regulated. We think very commonly and in very Western terms about a distinction between the public and the private. But you'll notice it's just not here. I mean, it's not here at all. Bodily functions here are a part of the public life of Israel. You just think of the consternation and debate in this country over the last week, and, and just imagine Americans being told, hey, you actually have no bodily autonomy, not, not any, none. <laughs> Uh, your bodily functions are a part of God's covenant community and a part of the community life as a whole. And then, of course, the sexual morality. We've already seen the dietary laws and, and uh, laws about what can be worn with what. I think when the average Christian thinks about the book of Leviticus, that's all they think about. I, I, I think what they think about is this, uh, this detailed law which... I think we have to respond honestly, appears to be, in the human scale, an enormous burden. I mean, just think of how much attention in the course of the day has to be given just to the law. How, how much uh, attention of the entire community has to be given to the law. These are people who also have to do other things. And of course, that's a part of what in the New Testament is actually affirmed. The law is a burden. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a gift. In the New Testament conception, as the Apostle Paul says, am I saying the law is not good? Romans chapter 7. He says, by no means. I'm not saying the law isn't good. I'm saying that we were actually meant for better than this. And that better from this is Christ. And Christ did not say never mind about the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law. But there's something else embedded in the book of Leviticus, and we arrive at that point today. Actually, when you look at Leviticus chapter 19, it's a strange mixture. A strange mixture of what you might say would be some of the highest peaks in Scripture, and then back down into the details of the law. And since the Holy Spirit gave us 
this chapter as it is, we have to assume and have confidence this is how we are to receive it. But I think it should be clear to us, as we will hear Leviticus 19, certainly the first half of the chapter of Leviticus 19, that Israel probably had no idea how significant these verses would be in the fulfillment of the law that would come. So let's, let's look at Leviticus chapter 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with the fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted. And anyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, just in the first eight verses there, the amazing passage is in the beginning. The Lord speaks to Moses, and this is the customary beginning of every discourse. And as you know, there, there are some variations here. At times, when it has to do with the, uh, the sacrificial system and the priestly duties, it will be the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying. But in this case, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, speak to all the people. So this is not just to the priests, this is to everyone. This is to the entire nation of Israel. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, Kadosh. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Just think about that, uh, being holy for a moment, holy. We, we use that word so commonly. But in its quintessence, this is where we we see this, you shall be holy even as I am holy. God establishes himself as a holy God. And because of his holiness, his people are to be, by his covenant, by his grace, and by his law, holy as well. You step back for a moment and you say, well, just, just what is this word that is so central? What, 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 what does this word mean if it if it's the one word God uses of himself. Now, theologically, we, we have to define God according to the terms he's given us. In systematic theology, this is, these are known as the attributes of God. And uh, in teaching systematic theology, one of the first interesting questions you have about the attributes of God is how they are to be divided. In, in the old Latin system, it's the communicable versus the incommunicable. In other words, attributes that are are metaphorically extended from us, like we are powerful, but he is all-powerful. And then attributes that are, that are his alone. You could say that uh, another way of describing the attributes of God would be see his moral attributes and his attributes of power, where we would put righteousness and justice and mercy and graciousness in the, in the list of his of his moral attributes, and then we would put omnipotence and omniscience and, and uh, you could, omnipresence and, and uh, immutability and all the other things revealed of God. We would put that in the, in the attributes of his, of his being. But the problem is we, we know that there are two huge faults we've already committed. Now, they're kind of inevitable simply because of our finitude, but the first fault is God's not divisible. And, and the second problem is his attributes aren't divisible. Now, let me tell you how this comes up in, in, in everyday evangelical reasoning. It comes up when we say, well, we need to balance grace and truth. We need to balance justice and mercy. Well, we kind of do have to balance because we're so imbalanced and we are not indivisible. We're very divisible. But when, when someone says, you know, we need to balance justice and mercy, like God balances justice. God does not balance justice and mercy. He is infinitely just and He is infinitely merciful. 
There is no balancing act in God. We, in our finitude, have to balance. So, you know, I'm the editor of the Grace and Truth Study Bible, without apology, just trying to look at those two themes. We say, well, we're, we're, we're trying to pair it with grace and, and, and with mercy. Okay, well, great. Are you gracious one minute and just, uh, you know, another minute? Are you, 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 you have mercy now and not mercy later? And you, you look at that and you rec- recognize, if you want any clear understanding of the distinction between God's perfection and our imperfection, it's that we can't even keep these categories straight in our minds. We're like Dostoevsky's idiot, idiot, you know, we're, we're, we're set on being just now. We'll be merciful tomorrow. We'll, we'll, we'll be gracious on Thursday. I am holy. Now, one of the things we need to think about is that God's attributes are revealed, sometimes in sentences, sometimes it's just this, where, where you, you will have a very clear use of a word, such as just or righteous. Just think of the prophets and their references to the attributes of God. Sometimes they're by inference, like uh, when God says that his, his hand cannot be stopped, well, omnipotence. But the word omnipotent also shows up. Um, and, and then we, we have some other challenges when it comes to the attributes, because even as uh, you look at the translation from the, the Hebrew to the English, uh, we're still very much indebted uh, to Tyndale. And uh, as we're, or even to Wycliffe, as a matter of fact, for some of this language. In other words, you could say omnipotent really has Latin roots just in terms of the omnis, and, the, and, and behind that, Greek roots. This is Hebrew, but nonetheless, it does tell us something else that in common grace, every language basically has to, work, has to have some kind of comparative and superlative to where you have not only big, better, and best, but you have biggest. You, you have biggest than can be imagined, and, and even as you have just, just, and even more just, infinitely just. As you know, in the Hebrew language, there is no natural comparative. The way to understand this is to look at Isaiah chapter 6. So just uh, take, take a moment because this is the quintessent chapter about the holiness of God. Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 6. This is the call passage of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then comes the prefiguration of the atonement of Christ in the next verses. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What I want us to see is the trisagion. That means it's said three times. You see it right here in Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, throughout the history of of theology, of Christian theology, much has rightly been made of this. The trisagion is the ultimate Hebrew way of saying infinitely so. R.C. Sproul helped popularize this understanding among evangelicals when he pointed out that in the Old Testament, the repetition of a word is, uh, is emphatic. So even as there are pits, there are pit pits. And if you're going to fall into a pit, fall into the pit, not into the pit pit. 
unimaginable as pit, pit, pit. Well, here is holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God that is given to us in this construction. So in that sense, we are told that of all the attributes of God, of all the words used in Scripture, of all the self-defining words, because after all, we talk about God's attributes, they should be those attributed to Himself by Himself. Because one of His uh, one of that attributes is inscrutability, that is to say, it says, but for His own self-revelation, we would not know Him. But He's revealed Himself as holy, holy, Holy. So as we look back at Leviticus chapter 19, when God says, you should be holy, for I am holy. Just notice that in that construction, everything seems to come together. It's as if right in the midst of all of this detail of the law, where we're talking about bodily secretions and who can do what with whom and, and, and how we are to handle all these things and who can eat what and what can't be on the plate with something else and what can't be worn with something else, all of a sudden, I am shows up. I am, such as Moses and the bush that burned and was not consumed. Who shall I say has sent me? I am. For I am holy. God, right here in the middle of this passage, unexpectedly, we find ourselves at one of the high points of all of Scripture. We find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 19 in, in the context of a passage that actually reshapes all of Old Testament and New Testament theology. And you didn't expect it. And by the way, in the same chapter, brace yourselves, it's about to happen again. When people talk about, this is my favorite Bible verse, or, you know, in times of comfort, I turn to this, or, or I consider the most, the most vital interpretive loci, that's a good hermeneutical way of saying that, those texts that just, that hinge text on which everything in Scripture depends. You say, well, I, you know, I would see, I would see uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, or uh, obviously Genesis, you know, one through three, or, of course, John chapter three, Romans chapter one. When's the last time you heard Leviticus chapter 19? Or for that matter, would you know, other than the fact we're studying Leviticus 19 this morning, would you know, someone said, yes, I think, uh, I think in biblical theology, we, we have to mention Leviticus 19 as one of the pivotal chapters. Would you know what that person was talking about? And, and would you know that there is not just one, but two of these magnificent hinges in all of scriptural interpretation that we find here in God's self-disclosure in Leviticus chapter 19. And again, the first is the holiness of God and then the derivative holiness of His people. Isaiah chapter 6 is one of my favorite passages to preach because it is so clearly one of these hinges upon which all of Scripture turns. The, the call of Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And, and, and then Isaiah's understanding of his sinfulness, the, the holiness of God, the first thing the holiness of God reveals about Isaiah to Isaiah is his utter depravity. And he's undone. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal translation accurately of the Hebrew word. I'm just undone. It's like I, I dissolve. I want to disappear. Would have been better if I never existed. But then one of the seraphs flies and takes a coal from the altar, touches his lips. He said he's a man of unclean lips. And says, your sins are forgiven. Again, that's a type of Christ. Uh, we have to be very careful. We, we shouldn't find in every rock and pebble of the Old Testament a type of Christ. It's all fulfilled in Christ. But type means a very clear anticipation of the person and work of Christ. And you don't, you don't have to probably have much suggested to notice here in Isaiah 6. This is a clear typological passage. But we're back in Leviticus chapter 19. And back in Leviticus chapter 19, the Lord speaking to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I your God, I'm holy. Now, in one sense, right here, this just explains the law again. It just explains the entirety of the law, the goodness of the law, the holiness of the law. I am holy, and you're my covenant people, therefore you must be holy. Now, back up a moment. Back up a moment. Let's go back to Genesis 1. 
In Genesis 1, where God creates all things in the sequence of creation that's revealed to us, and, and he creates human beings, the, the only creature made in his image, and, and he says this is good. And then with making human beings, he says very good. So just think for a moment. In light of the covenant of creation, and God's act in creation, all human beings should be holy as he is holy. All humanity should be holy as he is holy. In the garden before sin, all human beings, every man and every woman would have been holy in a demonstrative sense, in an unqualified sense, because God is holy. But Genesis 3 is the entire disruption of that. And so now we have to explain why we find holiness. Now just think about this for a moment. This is, this is massive to the biblical worldview. Now it is not a lack of holiness that would have to be explained, it's holiness. Do you think about that? It, it's holiness that has to be explained. So how do you know how to live? How, how would this people, why would this people live a, a, according to the law? That's a part of the logic of Israel's election. God gives to Israel the law. I love you so much. You're my people. But as my people, you're going to have to reflect my character. Now, imperfect, imperfectly, for sure. <laughs> I can't even, that's a parable right there when you can't say perfect perfectly. The imperfectibility of our holiness is going to be all, all abundantly clear. But nonetheless, that holiness is to be there. The holiness of the law. The holiness of God's own character. This, this is that, 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 that giant hinge, again, upon which everything stands. Now we have to explain where holiness comes. And in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, holiness becomes of the sanctifying work of Christ and the sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying ministry of the Word of God. Well, you say that's in the New Testament. Well, yeah, well, let's turn to the New Testament. Turn to 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's begin reading at verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that's not just a hermeneutical hinge. That's not just a, a, a reference back. That's an exact quotation of Leviticus chapter 19. And we're going to see again, not once but twice in this chapter, definitive texts for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are exact quotations of Leviticus chapter 19. Now, it's interesting just to ask the question, in the mind of Israel, centuries before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, would Israel have picked out these passages as their definitive passages? It's interesting that they just don't appear much as reflected or amplified upon in the remainder of the Old Testament. No, they're there in the background, and certainly the holiness of God is reflected and amplified. But not necessarily with much direct reference to this passage. And, and then you'll notice immediately, after the Lord says to Moses to tell the people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am holy. He then goes on to affirm the keeping of the law. So holiness is demonstrated in obedience to the law. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. Again, from the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Notice the I am, I am, I am language again, again, again. But we're, we're right back in the law. So here's something else. We as Christians... And here, again, Paul helps us in Romans chapter 7. We as Christians see the law as killing us because the law was actually killing us. But it's also keeping us alive by our obedience to the law. But only for a while. The law cannot save. 
But the law would keep Israel alive by God's mercy because they were God's covenant people. And God made very clear, you obey the law, things will go well. You disobey the law, things will go badly. And it tells us something. When those of us, you know, who have raised children and all of us who have been children, that's all of us. We know how dependent we are upon repetition. Right back into idols. And in verse 5, peace offerings, as we read together. And, and, and so, it is, as quickly as we read, you must be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're in, you can't eat, you can't eat anything sacrificed in a peace offering on the third day, for then you will bear iniquity. I was just reading a testimony of someone the other day who said that his Christian life felt like a roller coaster. And a roller coaster in which it's up and down and up and down and up and down. And I think many of us experience life just that way, you know, up and down and up and down. And, and we, we read a passage like this and it's almost like up and down, up and down. Usually holy for the Lord your God is holy. No eating the stuff left over from the, the, the peace offering on the third day. But I think one of the reasons we feel that way is because that's just the way it is. That is just the way it is. You know, for instance, we can push ourselves back from the table having had the most magnificent meal and say, it is as if I will never need to eat again. The next thing you know, you're in the cabinet eating crackers. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way it is. And I'm only talking about the elegant parts of life. I mean, they're just... just I mean, God, Martin Luther put it this way. It, you actually, people using the Latin term call it as cloaca theology. It's theology of the bathroom. You know, we can think we're really doing well, but we all got to end up there pretty regularly. <laughs> and you just go there. This is the most humiliating thing. And it is like there's a great roller coaster. We have the most grand experience of our lives. And the next thing you know, you're in a coughing fit. This is just the way it works in this life. But the highest thing we're called to is the holiness of God. And that's what's definitive for us, not only for time, but for eternity. In the next paragraph, again, the peace offering. We're told that the one who eats on the third day should be cut off from his people. So it's like we're on a height. We were there, we're, there, we're right there on Pike's Peak. And I say, you know, we're right down in the valley of someone being cut off from his people for eating peace offering a day late. But get ready, we're about to climb. Look at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the Lord, but you shall fear the, the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, by the way, just, just so we understand the context, note what follows immediately in verse 19. You shall keep my statutes, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. 
You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and yet not ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. By the way, that's a, that's a very liberating thing. This, this woman is not giving her consent. Therefore, she is not treated as an adulterer. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples, nor mar the edges of your beard. We're we're in facial cosmetics here. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Okay, so most of the passage we just read has to do with uh, either uh, agricultural practices such as the tree and the fruit and all of this. It's just part of it, if you're just looking at this, kind of like some of the, of the code having to do with the dietary laws. Some of it probably just makes sense, but some of it doesn't make sense. And that's the sense. This is just what God commands. Why does he get the fourth year? No one can take any of the fruit from the trees the first three years. You know, agricultural people will come along and say, well, that's probably a way of letting the tree be established, you know, et cetera. Yeah, but that still, that does not explain why this is a holy issue. Not to mention the, the commands related to the body. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbath. The Sabbath, we already heard that just in the first paragraph. And reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear the Lord. I am You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment. In measures of length or weight or quantity, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. So as we're here down in the, in the details of the law, no wizards, no, uh, no witches, uh, have nothing to do with necromancers, have nothing to do with, uh, with, with mystics, have, 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 have nothing to do with those who profane the law, have nothing to do with prostitution, Keep the Sabbaths. It's a repetition of these things over and over and over again. There is a tension here at the end of of Leviticus chapter 19 to uh, the protections of the sojourner. That's important. And and, and that is unprecedented uh, in in terms of the generosity that is required of Israel with the sojourner. Uh, There were laws common uh, to the ancient Near East. And, And for one thing, there would be have to be common wherever you'd find human civilization to some extent, uh, where, where there would be places of refuge or laws about how someone from outside the tribe, outside the group, is to be treated. Unusual generosity on the part of Israel, as it's called here. And then a reminder to Israel, you were sojourners in Egypt. So Israel is to receive sojourners as they would have wanted to have been treated in Israel. But then... Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That makes sense here. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Becomes explanatory here. But here's the question again. And in this case, the question's even more pressing. Did Israel, in hearing this law, pause and go, you know, I think, I think we're going to have to, 
I think we're going to have to listen to that particular verse pretty carefully and commit it to our hearts because it's a basic principle of our lives. There is no evidence of that. There is no evidence that the treatment of neighbor in this sense, as isolated in that one verse in Leviticus 19, was understood to be a crooks, C-R-U-X, one of these interpretive high points. So why do we think it is? Why, why, Why do we think that this passage is of such surpassing importance? It is because Jesus tells us so. Matthew chapter 22. It's it's Jesus who makes this point. Matthew chapter 22, beginning of verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, that's Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, the Shema. Shema, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Israel did know that that was such an important standalone principle, so much so that uh, the Jewish people today roll up that verse written in Hebrew and put it in the mezuzah. Uh, there in the doorway. It is the encapsulation of the law. No one would have been surprised by Jesus going to the Shema. It's the first word that was taught to the sons of Israel as they were being raised up in the faith. How do you know that? It's because that's what we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But Jesus was asked for the first and greatest commandment. That's like the easiest question to ask anyone who grew up in Judaism. If you go all the way through all the centuries, from Moses until Jesus, and every Jewish man or boy in particular, but also woman or daughter, should be ready to say, just as Jesus does here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then Jesus continues, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What what, what do you mean, Jesus? What, What are you talking about? A second is like to it. Moses didn't say that. No, God said that. Where did God say that? God said that in Leviticus 19. But in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we are told in the context of the passage, wait just a minute, hold on, here's what's coming. The great text that summarizes the entire law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Jesus says, mind. You look at that. So Israel's told, okay, this is it. This is the distillation of the law. One verse. This is what you're going to put in the mezuzah throughout the centuries on the wall. This is the first thing you're going to teach your son. But Leviticus 19? Who would have thought to go back there? Who who, who would have thought to go back to Leviticus 19 and for Jesus without hardly taking a breath to say, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's clear the lawyer has no idea what Jesus is talking about here. The shock is is apparent, and it becomes very apparent when Jesus is asking, who is my neighbor? Well, you know, if you have to ask who your neighbor is, you don't know your neighbor. And and so in the context of, of, of Matthew chapter 22, it's clear that this is shocking. This is shocking to the disciples of Jesus. What do you mean there's a second one? A second one likened to it? Now, it is second, and that again tells us the priority. If we're looking at a biblical theology and understanding command and obedience, then as as we look to Matthew chapter 22, the first commandment is the primary commandment, love of God. But the second is the derivative commandment, love of neighbor. And that's exactly a repetition of, of Genesis 1 and the logic of creator and creature. You love the creator? then you love his creation. The creator said of his creature, very good. 
Well, then what God loves, whom God loves, who God loves, we are to love. Now, at least a part of love of neighbor is made clear in Leviticus 19. And, and not only that, and you think about the question, you know, who is my neighbor? Well, in Leviticus 19, Israel is told that even the sojourner is in some sense a neighbor, to be treated as a fellow human being, not to be left vulnerable, exploited, unfed. But there's more to it than that. Just as, as we think about this particular passage, and, uh, and just as, as we think about love of neighbor, you know, we just need to recognize this comes up more than you might think. Paul will make reference as well. Look at Romans chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 9. Go back to verse 8 just to remember. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, Jesus, Matthew chapter 22, you say, well, did the church catch on? Did the church catch on that this is essential to our discipleship? Did the, did the church catch on to what Jesus was saying? That there's the first commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and, and mind, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your, your neighbor as yourself. Yes, it's, it's real clear the church did hear it. Paul heard it. Paul uses it exactly as Jesus said it is to be used as a summary. As a matter of fact, as you think about the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments in Exodus, we talk about the first table of the law and our duties directly to God, and then the second table of the law and the duties that we owe each other. It's love of God and love of neighbor. And the Apostle Paul understands that, makes that extremely clear by making reference to those very commandments in Romans chapter 13. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Again, the Apostle Paul. In order to understand it, let's go one verse earlier, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The entire law summed up in one word, that is in one phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Isaiah doesn't say that. Jeremiah doesn't say that. You know, Ezekiel, Daniel, they don't say it. Moses. Moses hears it from God and says it. But it's in the middle of the Levitical law, and it's not at all clear that in Israel there was any kind of understanding of the preeminence of that passage, like what comes up. And we're not finished. Because the most amazing passage in the New Testament, other than Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, the most amazing passage with reference to this text comes from the Apostle James in James chapter 2. So it's a passage that I think most Christians probably never think about. James chapter 2, beginning verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails it in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The point here is verse 8 itself. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Okay, now there's the passage. There's a direct quotation 
a direct quotation back to Leviticus 19. And in that direct quotation, James goes further to identify that particular verse as the royal law. Now, that just comes out of the blue. So just as we have looked at Leviticus 19 and these two astounding passages that become definitional for all of biblical theology, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we saw how that was reflected, how it ricochets throughout Scripture. And now the second passage that astoundingly in Leviticus 19 also ricochets through all of Scripture and redefines everything Not so much in Israel's experience, because Israel appears largely to have missed it, but the Christian church is shown this passage over and over and over again. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, Paul in Romans 13, Galatians 5, and here James refers to this very same verse, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and just kind of slipping this in, James refers to this as the royal law. Now, wait just a minute. This morning, before we gathered together, someone came up to you and said, could you please tell me the royal law? Could you have answered the question as to what the royal law is? Is this referring to something out of English common law, the law of the king? Is is this something out of uh, ancient Christendom? Is Is this something from the Holy Roman Empire? Or since this is in the time of the actual Roman Empire, is the royal law something handed down? And by the way, there are a couple of answers to that. One technical answer is no, because royal law would not have been a reference to Rome, which would have been imperial law. So this is not imperial law. This is not James saying, oh, by the way, even Caesar knows this. No, that's not what's going on here at all. It's the royal law, but who's the king and where's the kingdom in which this is the royal law? If you think about it for a moment, it's even more astounding. For James to use a phrase like the royal law and then just to go on in sight, you shall love your neighbor as yourself then he doesn't appear to be telling the Christians to whom he's writing something they're not already supposed to know. They're supposed to know what the royal law is. Okay, okay so royal means Roy, king. Who's the king? Well, only one king could possibly be the reference here as to a royal law. It has to be King Jesus. Okay, so this is the law of King Jesus. This is the royal law. With everything summed up in just a few verses, and again, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 22, the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James comes and says, after Paul's repeated it twice, Romans 13, Galatians 5, here in James 2, James says, Oh yeah, remember the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if the Roy, the king, is Jesus, then where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom in which this is the royal law? Well, right here in this room. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, eschatologically, it means in the fullness of the kingdom. This is, this is the royal law in the kingdom of Christ. But it's the royal law not only on that day when every knee shall bow, when every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the royal law right now because even as the kingdom is right now, right here in the redeemed, The royal law is our law. We read every verse and every word of Leviticus 19 right down to not eating leftovers from a peace offering sacrifice on the third day, right down to all kinds of what appear to be very small details, even about the mixing of this with that. But there in Leviticus 19, 
I mean, you could say even just in Leviticus, in the minds of most Christians who'd have no idea why we look back to Leviticus. But you know why we look back, not just to Leviticus, but to this one chapter of Leviticus, chapter 19, after we've been going through bodily secretions and sexual morality and, and all kinds of things and the Day of Atonement and all of this, and all of a sudden we arrive at, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Oh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you should have heard that the first time. The Apostle Paul says, remember it, remember it. Then James writes to the church, it being so well known that all he has to do is use the phrase, the royal law. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you have, uh, I hope you've exalted in Leviticus chapter 19. My guess is no one expected to, and that's the power of the Word of God. But there are particular passages that in retrospect you say, evidently we cannot live without a constant focus on that text. And maybe this morning you realize one of those texts is Leviticus 19. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you surprise us, you astound us. We are evidently creatures that need to learn by being shocked and surprised. Father, thank you for shocking and surprising us today. In the midst of the giving of your law and the repetition and detail of the law given to the Levitical priests and then the law and the commandments given to Moses, spoken to all the people, Father, we today are amongst all the people. And we thank you for your word. May we be holy because you are holy. May we love our neighbor even as we love ourselves. To the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord in the church, be glory forever and ever. Amen.